Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. In the entire history of our nation, no president or former president of the United States has ever been the subject of a criminal indictment. This is about to change. And it might be unsettling to those of us who want our politics to be more conciliatory rather than confrontational. Well, let me say, I think this is uh, another shameless perversion of our legal system, in this case by a Democrat prosecutor seeking political advantage over a Republican opponent. And Republicans may be having a field day right now playing the victim and crying foul. But I remember back in 2016, they were the mob urging, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up, and trying to gain political advantage by bringing non-legal concerns to bear on our justice system. Non-legal pressure. So when it comes to political posturing, both, pros- both parties end up discrediting themselves. But for the immediate moment, the Democrat prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, is the one playing political sport. Whenever I look at legal issues, I try to go back to the law code of ancient Israel, which both Jesus and St. Paul insisted still have, has moral force for us as Christians. I like it because it's a law code not just moral exhortations like we often see at the end of St. Paul's letters. And for the most part, the laws are clear. They show good common sense. They're obviously transcultural and transtemporal, and they can be just as helpful today as they would have been in ancient Israel if we only read and follow them. So the Ten Commandments, they call for fulfillment of basic duties. Honor father and mother. Shall not murder. Shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. And there's the covenant code that contains wise mandates like, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not spread a false report. And Leviticus 19 instructs the people, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy commands them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe. Sometimes these laws are quite specific. They have laws, for instance, on loans and gleaning food from fields. Uh, Deuteronomy 22.8 requires that a parapet, a low wall, uh, be built around a flat roof to protect those who walk there from falling off. You know, if modern Christians were to fully implement only this small sampling of Old Testament laws, which are straightforward but carry deep and broad implications, how much better our lives and our society would be. But there's an obvious difference with law codes today. In Scripture, God is the beating heart of the law. And law serves not our own political ambitions. It serves the common good. It helps us develop virtue and blessedness, neither of which is highly valued among the movers and shakers on Wall Street, Main Street, Madison Avenue, Silicon Valley, and the Disney boardrooms. So here I go into the coming indictment of former President Trump. We don't know the exact uh, indictment. It hasn't been unsealed yet. But in spite of all the spittle and fog, a few things do seem clear. First of all, the American people have the good sense to believe that generally no one is above the law. 
It's a rather late development in human history, and even today in practice, we often see that money buys justice. So you got the O.J. Simpson trial, a reminder of the power of money in American justice, an illustration for decades to come. But in principle, we do believe that no one is above the law. Sometimes people will say, well, Nixon was above the law because he was never tried for obstruction of justice in the Watergate affair. But when President Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon for the serious crime of obstructing justice, he wasn't saying Nixon was above the law. He was making a prudential judgment that Nixon had already paid a very high price for his crime. His reputation was in tatters. He had been forced to resign the presidential office a mere two years after he had won one of the biggest landslides in American electoral history. He was already lower than snake hips, as my former pastor used to say. To try him would have been mere legalism when compared to the price the nation would pay if a trial ensued. President Ford wanted to spare the nation the indignity of a long trial, which would have kept Watergate at the center of national attention for years, further destabilizing a nation already reeling from a decade of war, riots, and assassinations. Ford knew it was political suicide for him to commit the unpopular act of pardoning Nixon, but it was the right thing to do, and he paid a price. He lost to Jimmy Carter in the 1976 election. But Ford put the nation's needs above his own, uh, and we need, of course, more men of that sort today. And throughout Scripture, we find that the development of such character is more important than the niceties of the law. The stronger the relationship between people, in fact, the fewer the rules. So the first observation is, Look, no one is above the law. We agree on that. But second, not every law has to be enforced in every particular. The fact that every crime can be tried doesn't mean that it's always wise to push on it. Parents know this. Sometimes insisting on the rules creates more trouble than it's worth. Now, it's true that no society can exist unless its laws are respected. But the quickest way to discredit a nation's laws is to apply the law without reference to the more foundational moral law and our sense of justice. When law is applied in a petty and niggling manner, we lose respect for the law. On the other hand, the safest way to make laws respected is to make them respectable. Apply the law judiciously, not legalistically. Why do we lose respect for the law? Because the law is brought into conflict with our inborn sense of morality and justice. And this divides us on the inside. When law and morality contradict each other, a citizen has the cruel alternative of either stifling his own moral sense or of losing his respect for the law. So it's important to keep the two related, law and morality, but they're distinct. Otherwise, people will begin to think that the law defines what's moral or that nothing is moral if it isn't embedded in the law. You know, I think many people conflate law Injustice In their mind, they're the same thing, so that anything lawful is also moral. We saw this with permissive abortion laws. Uh, they implied that abortion is a moral act. It isn't. But many persons believe the lie that things are just because the law makes them so. Nixon himself once said that a law is right if the president says so. Not true. So while no one is above the law... The law can be misapplied and trivialized when it ignores larger moral or political implications. The third point has to do with Prosecutor Alvin Bragg. 
he does seem to be making a moral mountain out of a legal molehill. And let me suggest a few things. One, hush money conjures up intrigue and sleaze. Yet we all know that it's standard practice for public personalities and corporations to settle lawsuits rather than endure public scandal. And there's often, uh, you know, riders to those uh, settlements that require silence or at least some conformity to uh, a, a position. Wasn't Trump just exercising this standard practice when he had his attorney, Michael Cohen, give her what is called hush money? And Cohen then in turn reimbursed uh, Trump. Further, wasn't Stormy Daniels blackmailing Trump? Nobody's suggesting arresting Stormy for the blackmail. These will become clearer when the indictment is unsealed. The second point, though, that makes me think that Bragg is making a moral mountain out of a legal molehill is that three prosecutors including two U.S. attorneys from the Justice Department and the previous district attorney in the New York borough, uh, where uh, Alvin Bragg is right now, they didn't think these charges were even worth putting before a grand jury. And remember that a grand jury does not decide guilt or innocence. The grand jury only says that they believe there's enough evidence to warrant an arrest. You've heard people say that you can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich, meaning it isn't hard to present evidence in such a way that the grand jury says, hmm, we smell smoke, so maybe there's fire. Plus, you know, there's no defense in a grand jury investigation. No one is present acting to cross-examine witnesses or challenge evidence. Unfortunately, uh, even Nancy Pelosi, former Speaker of the House, got this wrong last night. She said that former President Trump now has the opportunity to prove his innocence. What? Former President Trump goes into the courtroom with the presumption of innocence. He doesn't have to prove anything. He doesn't have to prove his innocence. It's the prosecutor that must prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And Pelosi's comments are just one more bit of evidence that partisanship is corrupting our judicial common sense. A third point on Bragg making a... uh, moral mountain out of a legal molehill, is that he's got to convince a jury that Trump is guilty of a felony when, in fact, strictly speaking, New York state law regards the alleged crime as a misdemeanor. Bragg inflates it to a felony by a novel and flimsy legal theory that doesn't seem to have any backers. He claims that the payoff violated federal electoral laws. Okay, maybe so. But if so, shouldn't you leave it to federal prosecutors? Oh, they let they looked it over. And guess what? They turned it down. Plus, if the crime violates election laws, it's required that the crime had the possibility of influencing the election. But the payoff occurred just days before the election. So we rightly believe that no one is above the law. We know that the law must be properly applied and not trivialized by inappropriate application. And third, we have a flimsy legal theory here and a crime for which the statute of limitations has run out. Bragg would not have brought it against any defendant not named Trump. The first psalm is good to look at here because it gives us a picture of how to stay grounded in the midst of troubling times. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The word of God and the sacrament of thanksgiving the Eucharist are given so we can walk in God's ways in the midst of perilous times. Both the scripture and the sacrament communicate us the divine viewpoint and keep us remembering what human beings are really for and how to spiritually provide for their care and feeding. I'm Al Cresta.